and welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse and I'm Michelle. And today we will be talking all about musical conspiracy theories. I'm so excited for this episode because conspiracy theories are just kind of one of those funny things, but we've prepared some really funny and just like entertaining ones just for a good old laugh. So if you're a fan of our composer drama, all those types of episodes, you're going to love this. Some of these are historically kind of real, and the question is whether or not the intent of it was something. And then some of these are balls-to-the-wall nuts. (laughs) And I will clarify which are which. But also know that because it is a conspiracy theory, some of these have uh, dubious claims to reality. So don't take any of it too seriously. Yeah, this is not a true lesson in history, y'all. We're just going to have a good old time, you know, joking about some... Some little things, some some drama, some mysteries, you know. So uh, grab some snacks and let's put on our woo-woo caps. Before we jump into this juicy, exciting episode, though, we have a couple announcements. Yes. So as you guys know, we do a opera watch party on the second Friday of every month. So for this month, I cannot believe we're already in August. My brain is exploding just thinking about that. But on the 14th at 5 Pacific 8 Eastern. We'll have our opera watch party. As you guys know, that's hosted for free over cast. All you have to do is click on the link in our bio on the 14th. And usually on the Wednesday, we vote for what we want to watch. So it's lots of fun. We get to chat while watching an opera. We make lots of jokes. It's a good old time. So join us for that. And then we also have some exciting news, something exciting launching in the middle of this month. So We're working so hard to get this all done for you guys, but we think you guys are going to really like it and enjoy it. So stay tuned. We will be releasing more info about that very soon. And then, of course, if you haven't already, we would appreciate it so much if you guys left us a review on the Apple Podcasts app. I know you guys probably hear people asking for reviews all the time, but it actually helps us so much. It helps us get listed. It helps more people find us. It just shares the good vibes of Opera Offstage with more people. So be a homie. (laughs) Leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. Now, Jesse, what conspiracy are you going to uh, start us off with? So our first couple ones are all dealing with cryptography. The idea that there are hidden coded messages in music. And this is not necessarily the craziest theory. We know of some of these. A lot of For example, a lot of composers like to write their own names in their music. Bach did it and was only successful in it because B-flat is considered to be H, which I'll never understand, but I get it. But another person who did this was Dmitry Shostakovich. And a lot of times when I see like the signatures inside of music where it's literally just their name, their own name, I've always thought it was kind of a I was here kind of message that's always been my personal interpretation oh my gosh like sharpie in the bathroom stall like Bob yeah, was very here <laughs> shasti was here for shostakovich there is the question of whether or not him signing his name inside of his music was actually a political rebellion against the soviet union Ooh. which is a much bigger statement than i was here <laughs> uh-huh yeah, so the, the musical statement itself is D-S-C-H. So his first initial and the first three letters of his last name. And so what you kind of have to know to understand how would this have been a pushback against the Soviet Union, you'd have to understand that around 1936, Shostakovich fell out of favor 
with the Soviets in a really bizarre way. So up until this point, he had been pretty much in favor with the administration of that time. But in 1936, Stalin comes to see his opera, Lady Macbeth of Mtsensk, and if I'm mispronouncing that, I apologize, <laughs> and hates it. Hates it. They're laughing during the lovemaking scenes. He's watching Stalin flinch. Shostakovich immediately knows he's in trouble when he watches Stalin watch his opera. Yikes. <laughs> I would be so nervous. <laughs> Later, now once again, my Russian pronunciation is probably trash, so forgive me. Influential paper of that time called the Pravda publishes a criticism of his opera saying that like it's basically garbage. Now this opera has been out for two years and is pretty well loved. So now there's this national campaign to get every reviewer who had previously talked about it to take it back, to state that they were wrong and that it was actually a terrible opera. Oh. Mm -hmm. To recant their previous things. And it became dangerous to associate with Shostakovich. If you read through the history of this time, you'll see that a lot of contemporaries and even family members are put into prison or killed. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. Here's where this question of was Shostakovich pushing back against the regime by putting his own name in his music? Because at this time, any music that he begins to put out, he has to avoid any political overtones, has to avoid anything that would be considered antithetical, I guess, to what they would like. Mm -hmm. And so, and you see this even in how they start to praise his music. His music written before Stalin dies. They say he is not given into the seductive temptations of his previous erroneous ways. So he does bend his actual music style to them and kind of shelves any music that he thinks might upset them. His program notes are very clean. They don't really say anything. But then in 1948, he gets denounced again. And at that point, most of his music becomes banned. Sad. But after Stalin dies, a point in the category of his writing, his name, and his music was actually a form of political dissidences. After Stalin dies, he says, Without party guidance, I would have displayed more brilliance and used more sarcasm. I could have revealed my ideas more openly without having to resort to camouflage. So even just beyond writing his own name in his music, there's this idea that inside of his music were a lot of politically dissident ideas. And his children have said that that was true. But there have been musical historians who have pushed back on this idea saying it's really revisionist it's kind of just a hopefulness you know and our desire to believe that people were pushing back even though they may not have been hmm. but i would say the statement from shostakovich himself really does lean me towards like yeah he definitely was putting messages in there saying he would have wouldn't have camouflaged nearly as many of his ideas mm -hmm. yeah dang shosty writing some secret notes in his music and then like stalin losing his mind love it <laughs> yeah well i guess the question there for me though is to what degree does writing your own name in your music really help when you consider that he was being erased from music his music wasn't being played because it was eventually banned then yes putting your own name in the music so that if someone ever took your music and put it somewhere else without your permission your name is written in it in the motif mm -hmm. and there's also a good idea that it might have been that because there are other composers he's really good friends with benjamin Britten, and benjamin Britten also uses this dsch idea in his music maybe out of support for his friend oh i didn't know that huh mm -hmm. well you have to remember they're first of all they're contemporaries it's always confusing to try and remember who knew who during music history i really need like a side-by-side -side graph of who's alive during any given time <laughs> yeah but I, it, it's funny that britain's like just you know inserting some some shosty you know when he feels like it yeah that's cool 
I love that. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a mild introduction to the idea of code written in music. Totally. So next up, we have some Brahms. So obviously, I should be the one to talk about it because if you, <laughs> if you don't already know from our Sassy and Savage Composer episodes, I have a big crush on Brahms. So, you know, as Brahms does, he's really going through it in the mid to late 1850s. Not really a good time for him or the people closest to him. I mean, Schumann dies in 56. And, you know, around 1856, his relationship with Collada (laughs) is basically permanently friend-zoned, right? Like, out of his own doing. Which is just kind of like a whole drama in and of itself. Him wanting Collada for so long and then Schumann dies and that would be the time when it could happen and he's just like no never mind <laughs> so, i'm married whatever. to my music yeah that's a, that's a whole other <laughs> whatever issue all that being said is friend zoned with clara so then brahms meets a new hottie her name is agatha von Siebold in the summer of 1858 and agatha is described to have a voluptuous figure <laughs> a great sense of fun a beautiful soprano voice and for whatever reason like her hair like everybody talks about her long beautiful dark hair like one of his closest friends is like wow it must be really nice to run your fingers through her hair like I don't know what her hair routine was (laughs) Michelle this is basically a description of you I know okay I'm fully aware does it help you since you love Brahms so much that to know that he probably would have liked you too Yes, it does help me, (laughs) except for not, because they do not end up well, so whatever. But, so he's, you know, with them, and they're chaste, but but passionate. I read something where, like, Clara saw them embracing, and then she, like, wrote a jealous letter, and was like, he just likes her because she has a pretty voice. (laughs) Like, whatever, everything, like, is so dramatic, literally so high school. But this is not a great period of time for Brahms. In 1859, his first piano concerto is received super poorly people are like hissing in the audience he like writes a manifesto (laughs) that's not meant to be seen by anyone yet and it gets published and mocked in a paper they're just like calling him super conservative and he's like all butthurt you know as Brahms usually is and people are pressuring Agatha to at least get engaged because they're like what is y'all's relationship and like you know that Brahms is also supporting Clara and her children so like what like this doesn't look good you guys need to do something so they get engaged and then it all kind of like breaks down when his piano concerto is received poorly Brahms has like this whole tirade imagine hissing in the audience right (laughs) this is bizarre to me imagine if you were like doing your senior (laughs) recital and somebody was just like yeah like literally hissing yeah beyond me But, I mean, when it's received poorly, he goes into this spiral here where he's basically, like, if I'm paraphrasing a letter that he wrote, he's like, I can handle if my art is not well received because I know that I can just, like, keep on writing. But if I had a wife who said another failure, I just, ugh, I couldn't handle it. I like, and he's like, or if she tried to comfort me, he's like, I just couldn't handle it. And it's just, it's like, it's so stupid. And so it makes me laugh. Is it bad that I, like, I understand? (laughs) <laughs> yes it is <laughs> so they're there they just end up being you know toxic to one another and i don't know i found some things where it says that like she broke up with him he broke up with her who cares a lot of the original letters that we have they both burned which is very in line with Brahms. <laughs> so agatha being the queen she is leaves germany she becomes a governess in ireland um so truly living my dream 
And Brahms, in kind of like a rare moment of catharsis, in 1864, writes his second string sextet. And he actually spends a lot of time in this piece reflecting on kind of that traumatic, you know, 1850s time in his life. And he hides a lot of these names and these motifs in this piece. So in the first movement, it's super brooding. And he actually writes out Agatha's name. He writes out A-G-A-H, which I believe is B natural, and E. And that whole like opening movement has a bunch of semitones. And it's very, like everything's very dramatic and very stormy, as we see with Brahms. And that is reflective of his fallout with his kind of like lost love and then throughout the piece we have a a set of variations on a melody that Brahms had sent to Collada in 1855 and it's very much like a loving complex description or melody of his feelings for her and this is weaved throughout even from the get-go even in the Agatha movement but like definitely you see this in the slow movement and so honestly it's just really funny to me to think about like Brahms sitting and composing this piece and just being like my ex (laughs) and my like coulda woulda shoulda been ex (laughs) wham well I pulled this up too because I was like I was wondering how old he was (laughs) when he writes his moody sextet he was 31 and I was about to make a comment on that, and I was like, no, I'd still do this probably when I'm 31. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, it's really funny to me. Like, I think also, like, I could see him writing a stormy piece about Agatha, but I think the fact that he has Agatha and Clara in it together, it really is just like a sad breakup song. <laughs> you know what Sad I mean? boy stuff. Oh, uh, sad boy. Yeah, that just made me laugh because... Brahms is always I going through so it, much. but really going through it in the second sextet. <laughs> Just really, really feeling it. Really in his feelings for all of this. Truly. It is funny that he has both, though. <laughs> Just gosh. Gosh darn it, Brahms. <laughs> I love him. So this next one is actually probably... The code in this one is probably the most infamous in classical music, which is the Enigma Variations by Elgar. And... This one was funny to me because I actually, I know the Enigma variations, but I actually didn't know the code. I didn't know that there was a huge puzzle built into it. I don't remember ever talking about that. Do you? No. Right? And it's actually pretty interesting. So the Enigma variations are 14 variations on a singular theme. And all of these, the actual history of this piece of music is already very cute. (laughs) They're all supposed to be kind of musical sketches of the people in his life, including his wife and a lot of his close friends. So all of them hint at these different people. But that's not the secret. The secret is that the original theme isn't in the work, and Elgar never told anyone what the original theme is, the theme that all these variations are built on. Mm -hmm. But he presented it instead as a challenge to people and said it's a really common tune and... He gave all of these hints during his lifetime to the original theme, but he actually died without telling anyone what it was. Oh. So a couple of the things he said about it, okay, is that it's so well known that it's extraordinary nobody has spotted it. And he says, the enigma I will not explain, its dark saying must be left unguessed. Ooh. There are two different ways he states this. It's either that it's possible to add another phrase which is quite familiar above the original theme that he wrote or that the theme is a counterpoint on a well-known melody which is never heard in the actual variations 
And so for the past 100 years, people have been trying to figure out what it is. Because, I mean, the biggest clue is obviously that it's so common a theme during this time that people should be able to guess it. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, there are some people who simply believe Elgar is messing with everyone. (laughs) It's not really based on a well-known theme. He just loved the idea of people getting so hung up on it that... Oh, Elgar, you tease. They couldn't let it go. Well, see, the thing was, Elgar had kind of a thing with music critics saying that they preferred to, like, pick apart music rather than actually listen to it. So some people think it was a prank on the music critics of the time by just forcing them to constantly try and pick apart the music and not be able to figure out what it was. Amazing. Which is hilarious. (laughs) What a nutty prank to play on everybody. But also, there's a good reason to believe that... He did put a hidden message or a hidden theme in here because Elgar actually loved cryptography and he would write letters that would have to be ciphered. And even those letters are still trying to be figured out who he was sending them to and what the cipher was. So it's not unbelievable that he may have worked with it because he was fascinated by code. Spicy. Okay. So he really is just leaving us a little trail. There, I mean, there are variations on what people think has to be done to satisfy what Elgar has told us himself about this. But here are like the five basic rules. And this is from Julian Rushton, who simplified these so that people could make guesses. So number one, a dark saying must be involved. Now, what a dark saying is has so many different meanings. That in in and of itself is almost coded language. Whether that means the tune itself is dark or it has a dark version or some people believe it's something in a minor key. Right, because that's a direct quote from Elgar. Yes. Okay. And the theme is not ever fully played in the variations. He says it's never fully put into any singular variation. Mm. It can't be completely inside any of the variations. There's also the reality, like I said, that the theme should be well known. Right. So it should be a tune that most people would have known during that time. There's another one that's a little difficult to understand, which is that it should explain Elgar's remark that Dora Penny should have been, of all people, the one to solve the enigma. So (laughs) some way has to relate to his friend Dora Penny, who he believed should have been able to solve it. To some degree, it has to explain why he thought she would have been able to do it. Okay. And then finally, some musical observations in the notes Elgar provided to accompany the pianola roll edition may be part of the solution. That one's more of a suggestion, but there's an additional thing that they believe may help crack the clue. Okay. Wow, this is so interesting. This reminds me of being in like those analytical techniques class, like courses, you know? There's another little one that says that it has to deal with basically the musical ideas as well as the cryptographic issues and must produce workable counterpoint within Elgar's stylistic range and must at the same time seem obvious. So not only does it have to fit his style, be obvious, there's all these rules, which in some ways makes it feel like we should be able to crack this, especially in the technological age where it feels like you would almost be able to run it through a computer. (laughs) So it's it's fascinating to me that we haven't really been able to understand what it is. Yeah. Somebody just try a Siri, what song is this? (laughs) Siri, what song is this? Siri, what theme is this? Yeah. Right? But the whole thing is is just fascinating. That is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess it is. It's, I don't know. Would you say that this is, that it would be harder to crack now or easier to crack now? I mean, I guess you could read up about his friend Dora Penny, but I almost feel like he wrote it to be figured out then. And now maybe it's, yeah. it would be harder to do it because information is now lost. Like maybe something that was super obvious then is maybe not as obvious now. And I don't know, maybe that's why we still haven't cracked it 100 years later. But that's so interesting. Jesse, let's crack the code. 
Yeah, that's going to be our seven hour long podcast is us just <laughs> trying and horribly failing. We'll do a live stream. <laughs> yeah, there you go. getting nowhere. Going in circles. Forever. And here's the thing. I agree with you. I think it would be harder now because popular is such a vague term. Like well known doesn't necessarily mean long lasting. Exactly. <laughs> like it could have it could have been a drinking song at a local bar for all we know. Right. So let me tell you a couple of the ones that people have proposed. So there's Rule Britannia. Auld Lang Syne. The Prague Symphony by Mozart, one of the themes, which he had heard right before he composed it. So a lot of people think it's, it's a kind of lifted from Prague Symphony. Hmm. But my, my favorite theory that I read about, there's one person who believes and is very certain that the theme is actually a mighty fortress is our God. Huh? <laughs> But here's the thing. He goes, yeah, if you do a mighty fortress of our God, it fits really well over it. If you piece together three different versions written by Luther, Bach, and Mendelssohn, and then play it backwards over Elgar's music. Ooh, Pardon? okay, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that seems like a stretch. <laughs> Interesting. That one was my favorite, because I was like, I, you know, going with the whole it's really well known, uh, I don't think really well known fits three separate versions of that played backwards. <laughs> If you just completely doctor a piece, play it backwards and put it over. It's perfect. Um, some people also have said like the minor version of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, which is the idea of like a dark thing, a mm. dark saying. So some people think it might be just a song turned into a minor key. There's so many ideas, so many theories, but nobody, there is no consensus. And Brit Elgar accepted none of the solutions that were proposed during his life. But there is one musicologist, Norman Del Mar, who said... There would be a considerable loss if the solution were to be found, much of the work's attraction lying in the impenetrability of the riddle itself. The Enigma variations themselves might not have been so popular if it hadn't been for this whole mystery laid over top of them, which is totally possible. So it's also possible that Elgar was just really, really good at advertising. Ooh, I like that theory. <laughs> <laughs> me marketing person wow marketing you're like michelle's like okay so what hidden messages can we put in the podcast oh my now? god I know. what um enigma can we create that we'll take to the grave for our listeners jesse <laughs> wait i actually love that because honestly that would be so genius and i mean i totally understand that because yeah i mean the reason that it's so interesting and that probably people spend so much time listening to it and engaging with this piece is because like we naturally want to figure out things and solve puzzles oh i like that but honestly can we talk about how elgar is like a total troll for just taking this secret with him to the grave and just being like no that's not it no nice try dude couldn't like put it in his will to like pull it out of a vault a hundred years later or something one more hint (laughs) you know what i mean wow 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 yeah well, I'm going to go with that this it, is all a very smart marketing ploy. Because it makes you feel better. <laughs> it does. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty incredible. And I, if it is a troll and it's just, I mean, what an incredible troll. Also, start using that music theory classes. That's so much fun. I can't believe we didn't do that. How did we not do that in analytical techniques? Like, how is was- that so cool? I would literally have spent hours trying to figure it out. That would have been the best exercise. You could have made it a competition within a class. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, who can find, like, the closest tune? Because you'd have to look at what everyone else had already done. That's a free idea, teachers. I'm giving you that one rent-free. Yeah, you break it up. You break up the class into teams. And they got to figure it out and analyze it to get... Oh, my God. 
Who needs sports? We're gonna, when you we're could, gonna hold a competition. When you could break up into into teams. We're gonna hold a competition for the podcast. Oh my gosh. Wow. So yeah, I think that that's pretty peak code in music. That's pretty high up there on that list. The next conspiracy is probably the most famous conspiracy in music. It's probably one that even if you haven't looked into it, you've probably heard of it. Which is the conspiracy surrounding Mozart's death and whether or not he was murdered. I could talk about Mozart. Any aspect of Mozart, like literally all day. I'm so excited. Give us, oh, give yeah. us, give us the rundown of this conspiracy. Gladly. So the the birthplace of this conspiracy really comes from the commissioning of Mozart's Requiem. Spicy. Because Mozart wasn't originally writing the Requiem for himself. He had a patron, and so in 1791, Mozart is anonymously commissioned to write the Requiem Mass. So you know, and there's multiple stories that are like a midnight writer shows up and delivers a message. All sorts of things. But <laughs> what we know for sure is that in 1791, somebody commissioned him to write a requiem. And this is before Mozart is sick or anything. And so the the fact that obviously Mozart dies before finishing his requiem and that he was anonymously commissioned it immediately puts people into conspiracy mode. Ooh, spooky. Honestly, I didn't know that, that it was anonymously commissioned. I mean, I probably knew that and forgot, but that's huge. That definitely adds to the spook. We'll get into that in a minute, though. Okay. Give me just a second. <laughs> so Constance, Mozart's widow, uh, would tell the people who researched his life. I couldn't find out if they were biographers or not, but he te- she tells them that some six months before his death, he was possessed with the idea of his being poisoned. I know I must die, he exclaimed. Someone has given me aqua tofana, which is a mixture of arsenic and lead, and has calculated the precise time of my death for which they have ordered a requiem. It is for myself that I am writing this. So Mozart himself was possessed with the idea that he was writing his own requiem. Hmm. Okay, okay. Uh, So Mozart's basically like, all right, someone poisoned me. I'm about to die, but I'm not going to go visit medical health professionals. I'm just going to write my own requiem. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Feels very Mozart. He was very much obsessed with the idea that he had been poisoned. Like, his other friends also talk about it. He he really believed it. He started getting sick during the time he was writing his Requiem, which I think also led into these ideas that he was being poisoned, even though, you know, there was no evidence that people were poisoning him. Mm-hmm. Now, another big thing. Now, nobody knows who published this, but about a month after Mozart does end up passing, which was before he finished the Requiem. Okay. There is a note published in Berlin Newsweekly that says Mozart is dead. Because his body swelled up after death, some people believe he was poisoned. Now that he is dead, the Viennese will at last realize what they've lost in him. In life, he was constantly the object of cabals, which he at times may have well provoked by his irreverent manner. So we can assume that's probably one of his friends who yeah. wrote that. But but somebody pushes this idea that Mozart himself had that he was poisoned because his body had swollen up after he passed. Okay, do we have any reason to believe, like, is that is that a thing? Are there other reasons that he could have, like ballooned besides poison Shh. we'll get there okay oh my god i'm chomping at the bit so what becomes important to this idea is that multiple people at this time i mean who's the most famous person you think of in conjunction with mozart uh i don't know many <laughs> the regularly put forward antagonist to mozart's story oh uh, heck what's his name um salieri thank right. you you nailed it <laughs> That guy. Yeah, that's I I put you on the spot. That's not your fault. (laughs) But 
if we were to say, who do you think poisoned him? A lot of people would guess Salieri, but the whole idea that Salieri would have poisoned him actually comes from the conspiracy theories born after his death. And, and most notably, the writer and poet and novelist Alexander Pushkin, who you know even if you don't know, he wrote, he wrote a one-act based on this idea, and that story eventually spins out to become the movie Amadeus. Like, that, that story kind of becomes the origin of all of these future writings of this animosity between Mozart and Salieri. Not that there was none, but it tends to be dramatized. Okay, can we take a brief moment to appreciate the glory that is Amadeus? <laughs> The glory that is Amadeus. Oh, that movie is so good. We really should have a watch party just for Amadeus because it's so wild. Truly. That movie is so funny. Oh, so good. Also, like, I think I watched the unabridged version of that movie when I was, like, in middle school. And I think, is it Costanza that takes off her clothes in some scene? And I was traumatized (laughs) as, like, a (laughs) 12-year-old. Uh, anyways, go on with your conspiracy theory. Now, the question is, why do people believe Salieri poisoned him? Other than the fact that, like, financially, there might have been reasoning or something like that. You know, the the classic, like, he killed him because, you know, they were competing for the same job. Um, well, that actually comes because Salieri claimed for the last two years of his life that he poisoned Mozart. Oh. Yeah, no joke. <laughs> He's like, yeah, <laughs> yo, guys, I did it. That's all you gotta know. <laughs> what they don't tell you when they say that, and like I didn't tell you, is that he also had terrible dementia during the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And during none of his more coherent moments did he ever claim to do so. It was almost entirely dementia related, almost certainly. And people actually thought he was very, people thought he was actually very distraught after he died because Salieri loved to be pushed. And so, you know, part of what makes these competitive relationships work is like you push each other to be better so a lot of people actually think he was quite sad that Mozart had passed so uh, pretty likely he did not in fact murder Mozart he doesn't really claim this at all until near the end of his life either which is like 20 30 years after Mozart has passed okay yeah all right and eh. cut yeah I don't think that's it yeah but it's it's a it's a tantalizing theory and a lot of people hook onto it because like it 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 works with how we like to create our stories. Yeah, that definitely like is a Hollywood version of the of what could have possibly happened, for sure. Hence Amadeus. <laughs> Pushkin writes this story, and this story is rewritten over and over again to the point where it's probably, you know, it's becomes the basis of what is probably the most famous movie about Mozart, for better or for worse. For sure. So, there's another really interesting idea though that you'll like which is that he was murdered over the magic flute. Why? Because Mozart was a Freemason. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. And one of the things you learn when you do uh, the magic flute and what they'll talk about is how a lot of like the idea that the temple stuff and stuff might be related to Mozart's time as a Freemason, that he may have revealed secrets in writing the magic flute and therefore was killed over for revealing the secrets. That makes sense. There's a... Distinct problem with that theory, though. Okay. Schikanator was also a Freemason and also did not die. (laughs) True. He outlived Mozart by quite a bit. He also actually wrote the libretto. So if anyone's responsible. Right, right. That's true. (laughs) Our little Papageno. (laughs) Our Um. little Papageno. 
But once again, it's a tantalizing theory because the Masons and the Freemason idea is, you know, it's the basis of a lot of even modern conspiracy. No, totally. Yeah, I could see a lot of like modern people being like, oh, yeah, probably had something to do with the Freemasons. Yeah. Huh. Okay. That's true. But the fact that Shikinator is just like chilling. But then, I mean, Mozart's definitely the bigger name. So (laughs) interesting. Okay. All right. I'll see you. This idea is is taken over and over and over again. Now, the biggest problem with this whole thing, right? What did I tell you right at the top of it? All of this is born out of the idea that he received an anonymous commission and that he believed he was being poisoned, right? Those are like the two big mainstays of this. Right. It was anonymously commissioned, but at this point, we kind of actually do know who commissioned it. Oh, who was it then? <laughs> there is a man named Count Franz Waltzig who was a very wealthy amateur musician whose wife had just passed away. Okay. And the reason it's anonymously commissioned is that he had a habit of commissioning composers to write him pieces and then passing them off as his own. Oh, okay. But don't you think, like, if you commissioned Mozart and we're going to, like, pass it off as your own, like, people would know it was Mozart? Isn't that kind of just a huge stretch? Oh, my gosh. And especially the Requiem. Doesn't that just sound like the worst idea ever when thinking about trying to claim that you wrote Mozart Requiem if you're an amateur musician? (laughs) Anyways, go on. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, no. And, like, once again, Mozart's Requiem, to sit there and say, like, you would have passed that off as your own and actually accomplished that would have been wild. But I guess there is just a fascination with the fact that, of course, Mozart didn't write the Requiem for himself, even though he felt like he did as he wrote it because he thought he was going to die. And I think that's what gets people is, like, to be writing a Requiem when you die. (laughs) Most composers who die are writing their Ninth Symphony or have finished their Ninth Symphony. So that's the whole, you know, the curse of the nines. Mm Mm-hmm. So to be writing a Requiem when you pass, I think that's what gets people going on this one. Totally. Yeah. But actually, the most likely theory of how reason he passed is probably a strep infection, which causes edema. It causes the swelling we were talking about earlier. Most people agree that it was almost certainly just an infection that came back again and again, which would play into your mind that you were being poisoned. But it's actually just an infection that never really went away. And there's also good evidence that it was going around the city. But that's really boring compared to being poisoned by your arch nemesis. By an anonymous arch nemesis, too. Mm -hmm. Wow. But I will say this. I I mean, there is obviously the reality that Mozart himself believed he was dying. And some people say that his decline was super quick and therefore didn't make sense with an illness. Like, there's various reasons people lean into the conspiracy side of this. And I can understand why. But, you know, Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is usually correct. It's not that weird to die from an infection during this time. Yeah, but I would agree. Just being like, oh, wow, one of the greatest composers ever. He just died from strep and probably a healthy or rather unhealthy dose of anxiety. That's not very fun. (laughs) So I lean into these conspiracy theories. It's fun. Our desire to make things bigger than they are, our desire to make our stories more epic, more compelling, I think that's what gets us. I mean, it's it, it disappoints us when someone as grand as Mozart is just taken out by a strep infection. And so, you know, the idea that he was commissioned anonymously and then poisoned, like that is just so much more compelling to us. Yeah, and that he had a hunch that he was being poisoned and that he thought that they had timed it perfectly so that he would die and then he does. And it's like, ah, crazy. <laughs> so now we're on our final one. And this one is absolutely buck wild. 
Uh, when I came across it, I was so shocked because this is something, this is a discussion I've heard before, but I've never heard like the conspiracy side of it. And it all centers around our tuning pitch, A440. The something that we, we kind of all agree, like we tune to this, okay? So to give you a very simple overview of the history of A440, prior to this kind of agreement that we would all just tune to A440, everyone kind of tuned their own A. Right. So A's would be, you know, anywhere from like 420 to 450, even up to like a third above or below an A. Like it, it was crazy, which is why perfect pitch didn't even really exist in that time in the sense that your perfect pitch is determined by what you consider to be A. It, it's based on whatever instrument you learned pitches from. Right. Right. So there, along comes a man named Johann Heinrich Scheibler, who creates a tonometer that measures pitch. And he goes from place to place, and he comes up with this idea that 440 is a reasonable average of the A's that people are tuning to across Europe. So he proposes that A440 is a good median. It, it meets in the middle of a lot of what people were already tuning to. Okay, that's reasonable. And it becomes the officially the Stuttgart pitch after the German Society of Naturalists and Doctors agree to it. And it starts to kind of take hold in Europe, but not to a large degree. It's not really until the early to mid 20th century that both in Europe and the Americas, people start to really agree to tune to A440. And there are still groups today that do not tune to A440. Like there's still a lot of disagreement around this, but I didn't realize this. It really wasn't until like mid 20th century that people really do agree that like, this is what it is. Hmm. 1936, the American Standards Association agrees that it's A440. And then the International Organization for Standardization affirms that in 1955. Interesting. So that's that's really when people really start to just say like, okay, we're all just going to tune to this, right? And so that's the generally accepted history of A440 becoming the pitch. What's the plot twist? Where is our plot twist? So there are two different camps in this who both believe that middle A or A440 is an abomination against nature. One is for 438 hertz and the other one is for 432. And we're going to talk about the 432 hertz because their story is weirder. Now, 432 hertz is considered Verdi's A. It, it, it was what he used at the time to tune. Mm, okay. They believe that it is a pure tone of math fundamental to nature and is mathematically consistent with the patterns of the universe, vibrating with phi and the golden ratio. So the idea is that this is the tone most in tune with nature. Okay. And also because it resonates with 8 hertz, which is the Schumann resonance. No, it's not that Schumann. It's a different one. It's a scientist. Oh. Which they believe is the heartbeat of the Earth, the electromagnetic heartbeat of the Earth. What the Schumann resonance really is, is like spectrum peaks in the low frequency of Earth's electromagnetic field that kind of produce uh, electricity. Okay. That, that's, once again, a vastly simplified. Um, and there are some ideas that it relates to how the ratios and tuning might be more pleasant to your ears, and it might even be a little more resonant at 432. That 432 is just a more accurate A, and that 440 is kind of a simplification. Okay. Now, that in and of itself isn't that crazy. Like, it's totally possible that our average that we chose back in the 1860s is not perfect, right? People argue that all the time. Yeah. It goes off the rails when you connect the choice to make it A440 to the Nazis. Oh? So... Because we start to see the actual standardization of these pitches in the 1930s, pre and during World War II, you start to see different groups of people standardize it. And so they believe that 
Joseph Goebbels, who was the Minister of Propaganda during the Third Reich, imposed A440 as part of a plan to warp the consciousness of the masses. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. So brainwashing without knowing. Yeah. They believe that this will incite violence in people. Oh my gosh. And that it, it disturbs them. Uh, and it can cause mass hysteria. So there's a man named Dr. Leonard Horowitz, who, this is a direct quote from him. The music industry features this imposed frequency that is herding populations into greater aggression, psychosocial agitation, and emotional distress, predisposing people to physical illness. Now, what you should know about Dr. Leonard Horowitz uh, is that he's a dentist. Oh. And he's also an anti-vaxxer. Oh. Oh, and I went on his website to read the original article that this pulls from, which, by the way, is from uh, Medical Veritas, the Journal of Truth in Health Science, which has a flashing headline. So maybe not the most trustworthy source. It may not be the best source. You know, this reminds me of like when you go <laughs> when you go down the YouTube spiral and you're watching conspiracy theory videos and there are all those conspiracy theories that there are hidden messages or like frequencies and in ads bait like targeted towards kids that only they can hear that say like demonic messages or like when you play things backwards that's the vibe that i'm getting from from all of this one of my favorite conspiracies of all time was that there used to be a hidden tone in the old pokemon games that like drove a bunch of kids to suicide None of it's true, but like it's in in the original games. There's a really creepy town. People believe that there was a weird tone in it that would drive kids crazy. Wild. I love that weird, crazy stuff. But also, I should say on his website, there's also there's a header called the vaccination Gestapo. There's Farmaganda. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I would say questionable. Okay, probably not our most credible source. <laughs> <laughs> I liked the golden ratio and all that a lot better. <laughs> yeah, the golden ratio. The idea that like, oh, this is just more in tune with nature and it actually just helps us tune better. He does not just connect this to the idea of like Nazis and Joseph Goebbels because that's kind of a vague one because it, it doesn't really connect to any statements. Uh, he also connects it to the Rockefellers. He connects it to the Illuminati. And they go so far as to say that if music was played and tuned to 432, that it would actually generate a positive healing energy. That, like, it would have a massive effect on our bodies. Not just, oh, this would sound better, which is generally, as musicians, where we come from when it comes to tuning and things. They legitimately believe that this would heal the world. That's incredible. Like, just all issues surrounding humans cured. Just because we've been, what, eight knocks too high in tuning our A? That's got to be the funniest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, well, and even then there's this idea that's what caused mass hysteria with, like, rock music and things. And they tie in, you know, record agencies and the music company. Like, the people who make elevator music are in this theory. Uh, to actually cover this theory in full, I would have to take a full hour. Like, that's how long it would take me to dissect everything going on in this conspiracy. And, and maybe one day I'll do it for YouTube. <laughs> but... I cannot believe we've been living our lives brainwashed by the Nazis. By A440. Uh, A440 ruins my life every day. <laughs> A440 It makes me crazy. Life. Wow. Yeah, like I said, wow, you could get into chakras and there's so much in here. 
I mean, I don't really want people to go look this up because I don't want you to put more eyes on this thing than are absolutely necessary, but maybe look into it because it's pretty funny. <laughs> Please don't take it seriously. That's like A440 is the definition of bad vibes, bad vibrations. I think some of this too comes out of this idea. You know, it wasn't too long ago that we got like a bunch of documents talking about different things that like the military had tested out. I'm sure the military has looked into like messing with people with music. There's no doubt about it. Certain things played together are unnerving and annoying and would keep you from sleeping. And I'm sure they've studied that. There's no doubt in my mind that there may have been research into this. The idea that as a whole, music went to A440 to cause mass hysteria, though, that's where we get into the problem. That's so funny to me. Because, like, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but have you ever heard of the men who stare at goats? No. It's based on this actual military project where they tried to see if people could mind control goats. (laughs) That's a real military (laughs) experiment that happened. Which is to say that there's been a shit ton of military experimentation that is wild and weird and that we will find out about later. I don't think A440 is it. And I even think that basic theory on which you, I mean, not to give this any credibility, please don't. Because I already gave you the real history of A440, which is that a guy back in the 1860s basically said, this is about average, right? Which doesn't mean we shouldn't eventually change it. There There is a compelling argument there that A440 actually is a weird thing to tune to. Because we didn't really scientifically measure it. At some point, we just made it the standard and we made it, we've been too lazy to think about it since. Yeah, everybody's like, yeah, that works. <laughs> there are still ensembles that play to different tunes. There's one, there's a well-known one in New York that, like, I think tunes to 432 or 438. Yeah, so there's an interesting argument there in general for musicians that doesn't include a wild conspiracy theory about how we're, how we're just a bunch of vibrating water. Manipulated by 440. <laughs> Manipulated it. Well, I guess my my basic issue with this thing is that the idea that 440 makes everyone way more aggressive, I don't see how that helps a government. (laughs) True. That seems like the opposite of what you would want from your your people. Yeah. Wow. What a trip. (laughs) Just beyond wild. Yeah. Like I said, I would need several hours to really get into the history of this and like all the wild subsections of the belief in A440 versus A432. Crazy, crazy. Okay, so basically, we all need to band together to figure out Elgar's mystery. You know, if you ever want to write a song about your two ex-lovers, you're in good company with bronze. Mozart was definitely poisoned by Salieri, and we're all going crazy and controlled by 440. So (laughs) that's our recap for this episode. We hope that you guys enjoyed, you know, having some fun and talking about these wild subjects. We love conspiracy theories. You know, they're just, that's exactly what they are. They're conspiracy theories based on a lot of he said, she said, really out there facts. Well, not even really facts, but, you know, it's fun to to divulge in this kind of stuff. So we want to know, are there any music conspiracy theories that you are interested or like kind of whatever you think are interesting let us know if you're not already following us on instagram and facebook you can find us at opera offstage and on our website opera-offstage.com we'll see you guys next week bye bye